We'll start with a fairly simple question. What is wrong with the world today? Certainly there's some perhaps simple answers, maybe not so simple answers. Perhaps you spent a matter of time this week considering a question such as this. We could fill the hours ruminating over this question, couldn't we? What is wrong with the world today? I think we spend a lot of time thinking about it. Oftentimes this question is more framed as complaints or longing for days gone by, but even these complaints and longings often rooted in this question, what, what is wrong with the world around us? Well, let's say we could get together and agree. We could boil it down to a few common denominators and, and come up with, okay, these one, two, three, four things. These are the things that are wrong with our world, that are wrong with our society, that are wrong with our country. And let's say we could agree but then we come to a much more difficult question, don't we? What exactly do we do about it? Given every resource, given unlimited time, given unlimited funds, what would you do to fix the world? Perhaps you've thought about that this week too. Maybe you haven't claimed to have the answers, but I think in a lot of ways we pretend to have the answers, don't we? What is wrong with the world today and what will we do to fix it? Well, I think what complicates this matter so much is what G.K. Chesterton once concluded in response to a question that was posed by the editor of the Times of London. And the question asked is this very question, what is wrong with the world today? Chesterton wrote a letter back to the editor briefly, quote, dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. As we saw last week, as Pastor Purcell took us through the vineyard song of Isaiah, we find that the problem with the vineyard is the vine itself. It's not what is outside of the vine, but it is the very vine that ends up being the problem. And so it is with us. The problem with humanity is humans. And this is a lot of what Isaiah has to say in his whole prophecy, naming the problems and telling particularly the nation of Israel along with other nations that you really are the issue. You are what is wrong with the world. And it would seem that the problem is beyond repair As we saw last week, this vine that is the problem ultimately has to be ripped out. It has to be removed. A new vine has to be put into its place. One that would bear fruit pleasing to God. One that would come for the life of the world. Well, this morning we come to another set of songs as we walk through songs of of the Bible. And, And in a lot of ways, The servant songs of Isaiah, these four songs found between Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 53, answer some of the questions that the vineyard songs allude to. Namely, who will do this saving? What will he do to accomplish it? 
And how exactly will he do it? And there's those questions that I want to consider this morning as we look at these texts together. Again, we, we read the first and the last servant song this morning. There's two in the middle, and we'll consider some of the themes throughout. And as we do, the first question I want to consider is who is the servant? Well, in some ways, we get to cheat here, don't we? As we read Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, one of the most clear messianic passages in the whole of Scripture, we can clearly say that this servant is Jesus. It's so explicit there as we see, and as we see the New Testament authors quote this text, that this is clearly pointing to Christ our Savior. But let's pretend for a moment that we didn't have that advantage. Let's pretend like we're looking at Isaiah 42 for the first time and reading these words, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Well, if you were a faithful Jew reading this passage, the answer to who is the servant would be quite clear. It's Israel. Israel is the servant of the Lord. In fact, the previous chapter explicitly says it, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. It uses the same words that the servant song uses, talking about this chosen servant. But what is even more interesting is as we look at the second of the four servant songs, Isaiah himself concludes the same thing, speaking on behalf of the Lord. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So is it Jesus or is it Israel? Well, as we find from Israel's very beginning, they were always called to be God's faithful servant. They were always called to be a light to the nations, a people who would be God's righteous people, spreading God's righteousness to the ends of the earth. Israel's call was not unlike Adam's call in the garden a call to spread God's image, his righteousness, his kingdom. Of course, we know how that story ends with Adam. That does not go so well, but so it is with with Israel and their call to bring this righteousness, this justice of God to the ends of the earth. We see time and time again them not doing that at all. In fact, them ending up looking like the other nations, most of the time, even worshiping their gods, taking on their practices. We know God's servant Israel fails time and time again in many, many different ways, all while continuing to participate in the temple with no heart and with no true faith and with no repentance. Like Adam, Israel fails at this task of spreading God's righteousness to the ends of the earth. So as we come to the servant songs and, and, and this prophecy of Isaiah says that this servant is Israel, we ask ourselves a question similar to that of the vineyard songs. And we come to a similar con- con- conclusion that just as there needs to be a new vine, a faithful vine, we need a new Israel. We need a faithful Israel an Israel that will be true to God's call, that will be obedient to his law, 
that will do what God intended Israel to do, to spread his righteousness, not only to this small nation, but to the ends of the earth. And what is interesting is we look at these servant songs, this faithful Israel will himself gather Israel. If you look at the second song in chapter 49, it says, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. This servant of the Lord that in some way takes over the role of the old servant will gather that old servant and bring him back to the Lord. But not only this, not only will he regather Israel, but we find in the servant songs, as the Lord goes on, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back preserved Israel. God says, this is too small of a task for this servant. He goes on, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation might reach to the end of the earth. The Apostle Paul quoting this in Acts as they're preaching to the Gentiles. A verse that we sing every week at the end of our worship gathering. This is the Savior of the world, the Gentiles' promised light, God's glory dwelling in our midst, the joy of Israel. A song of Simeon quoting the servant songs of Isaiah, speaking of Jesus, who will be a light to the ends of the earth. Jesus would be called upon to do what Israel and Adam before failed to do, to spread the glory and the fame and salvation of the Lord to the ends of the earth. And this is why we find the gospel writers going to such great lengths to show that In many ways, Jesus' life recapitulates the life of Israel, and yet he is faithful in all the ways that they are not. His trial in the desert being one of these ways. Not 40 years, but 40 days. Tempted by the devil, just as Adam was, but Jesus found to be faithful. As we found last week, Jesus is the new vine, but Jesus is also the new servant that he is faithful, which is why Paul will tell us that all who are in Christ by faith are true Israel, united to him, united to that vine. Well, if we know first who the servant is, let's now consider what it is that he will do. Well, if we consider the beginning of Isaiah 42, the first servant song, this question is is actually has a fairly clear answer. The prophet tells us, I have put my spirit upon him that he will bring forth justice to the nations. So this servant, his task, what it is he will do is to bring about justice, to establish God's righteousness to the ends of the earth, not merely in the nation of Israel, but to the ends of the earth. Well, I think it is worth asking, what exactly is justice? (laughs) What do we mean by that? To bring forth justice certainly means to bring forth some sort of recompense. A wrongdoer gets their just desserts. We might think of our own criminal justice system when we think about this. What does it mean to bring a criminal 
a lawbreaker to justice. Well, eye for an eye, right? A criminal justly convicted gets a punishment in keeping with that crime. But let's think about this for a moment. Let's uh, say you have a car. If you're a kid here, you have a bicycle, a cool one. It's got gears and a, and a horn. Let's say you leave your car, your bicycle behind to run an errand. And after the errand, you come back and you find the bike rack, you find the parking space empty. Your vehicle is gone. And so you rightly call the authorities, you, you file a police report, you call a cab or an Uber, you call your parents and get a ride home because your transportation is gone. Well, several days later, you receive a phone call. It is the police and you ask, is is this about my stolen bike? Is this about the car? And they assure you, yes, yes, it is. And you excitedly respond, "You, you found my car. I say, no, but we found the perpetrator and we have convicted them, we have charged them and they have received recompense. Justice has been served. But you still don't have a bike. You still don't have a car. This is as good as justice gets in this world. (laughs) Punishment. But is that biblical justice? What does it mean to bring about justice? Even if, as we look to God's law, we find that justice is actually much greater than mere punishment. For instance, if you were to steal or kill your neighbor's ox, ancient form of a car, um, the law required that you would not only replace the ox, but what more? Four more. You would not only be punished for what you did by taking an ox away from you and giving it to your neighbor, but you would make right and far more than that which was made wrong. In the story of Zacchaeus, when he comes to faith in Christ, he comes to understand biblical justice. If I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will repay fourfold. This isn't merely Zacchaeus being generous, but he sees what justice is. It's restoration. It's making things to be as if they had never been wrong in the first place. And this is the kind of justice that God ultimately requires. But what about if the offense is against God himself? Every fit of anger, every grudge against your neighbor, every ounce of discontent, every pound of forgiveness, every time you neglect like Israel to act justly, to love mercy, And to walk humbly with your God is an act of cosmic treason. How is God's justice to be served? Punishment seems like a good start, but it doesn't really bring about ultimate justice, does it? It's interesting that the servant songs and their call for this servant to bring about justice 
don't mention punishment, at least not for the guilty. On the contrary, a bruised reed this servant will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench, and yet he will faithfully bring forth justice. The reality is, is that punishment alone falls short of God's requirement for justice. Just as Israel was called not only to rid the land of idolatry, but to fill it with right worship, God serving forth justice means not only to get rid of injustice, but to make things as if they'd never been wrong in the first place. This is how we understand our doctrine of justification by faith alone, not merely forgiveness, but a gift of righteousness given to us, not just as if we had never sinned, but just as if we had kept the fullness of the law. That's what is given to us by faith, Christ's perfect righteousness. That's what biblical justice looks like. And this is a far more radical solution than merely wrath, isn't it? We find here in the servant songs that God would bring about a radical solution, that he would reveal, as Isaiah 53 tells us, his outstretched arm to Israel. This phrase that we see here, the arm of the Lord, comes up many times in the scriptures, and it is always pointing to Yahweh's manifest power, and particularly, usually, his power to save his people. It was by his outstretched arm that he brought Israel out of Egypt that he would deliver his people from their enemies by his outstretched arm. This this arm of the Lord is a picture of God's might and power and faithfulness to save. The interesting thing in Isaiah is that usually when God shows forth his arm, everyone knows it. You know, when the Red Sea is blown back, you can say, okay, that was probably God. When the walls of Jericho fall because the choir is singing, probably the Lord. And yet how God will bring about justice as we see in the servant songs, people aren't going to get it. They're not going to see it as God's power. Isaiah himself writes, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Because this time, and until the end of time, when Jesus comes not as servant, but as judge, the arm of the Lord comes to us not looking like power, but looking like weakness, looking like foolishness, as Paul says. And it is through this weakness that we find how the servant will bring about justice, which is our final point for this morning. How will he do it? I read an article online this week entitled How to Take Over the World. Uh, Global conquest is a little bit of a side interest of mine. Um, But right to the get-go, I found this article would be of no avail to me. Step one is to be born into wealth and power. I was born in Mississippi. Um, If you've met my kinfolk, you would know that this plan's not going to work. But anyway, step one, be born into wealth and power. Step two, work the system. 
i.e. use those connections that you were born into to acquire influence, acquire power. Step three, rub elbows with slimy people. And finally, this will lead to crush your enemies. Well, perhaps that's not our answers to how to save the world. And yet, when we consider how to save the world, our answers will always involve scheming. They will always involve some kind of worldly wisdom. They will always involve some sort of display of power. If we can, if we can just get our guy in office, if we could just have, have this law against this or that, and, and good people in office and good laws are good things. Don't get me wrong. But they won't save the world. Because you'll still be there. And you are the problem. I am the problem. We believe that to make the world right means getting the right people into high places. But the gospel according to Isaiah says that saving the world is all about getting the right person into the lowest of places. It is this that the servant of the Lord does. He is no doubt the arm of God. He is the power of God, of God to save. But when you see it, it is so hard to believe. As Luther says, God always works in the opposites. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, who never was not, took on human form to do what Adam could not do, to do what Israel would not do by becoming the servant of the Lord, coming not to be served, but to serve, to give righteousness. Jesus came to earth, not being born into wealth or power as the article suggests, but as Isaiah tells us, grew up like a root from dry ground with no form, with no majesty, and with no beauty. Jesus did not come to work the system using his divine connections, but he came not considering equality with God, something to be grasped. Not climbing the social ladder, but emptying himself, becoming one despised, and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, not esteemed, but stricken, smitten, and afflicted. The third step, rub elbows with slimy people. This he actually did do. Not in order to use the ungodly to get around the law, but to save the ungodly from the curse of the law. As Isaiah says, he was numbered with the transgressors. He made his very grave with the wicked. And finally, as we find in the servant's song, he did not come to crush his enemies, but to be crushed. To be crushed for his enemies, of whom we were once counted to be cut off from the land of the living, to be stricken for the transgressions of his people. The mighty outstretched arm of the Lord looks like a crucified man from Nazareth, 
And that never made sense to the Jews. It doesn't make sense to us. But through the eyes of faith, which is a gift of God himself as well. To those who believe it is the very wisdom, it is the very power of God. For cloaked in weakness is the only way that God made, might make everything right. <laughs> the only way that he might make it as if it was never wrong. And Isaiah tells us about, by his knowledge, the prophet tells us, the righteous one, my servant, shall make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Not punishment for the faithful, but restoration. Not merely forgiveness, but a gift of righteousness. We find here this beautiful doctrine of the imputed righteousness of Christ, where his righteousness is counted to us. It wasn't an invention of the reformers, as it turns out. Not even an invention of Paul, but right here, right here in Isaiah, he shall make the many accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And this is the way that Jesus brings righteousness to the nations. The question is, will we believe it? And will we believe that this continues to be how God saves us? Through foolish means, through foolish people, through things like water being poured on an infant, like bread and wine being partaken by the faithful. He continues to use foolish things like words going forth from the mouth of a sinner, but to those who believe the very word of God for our salvation. Robert Coleman in his book, Written in Blood, tells of a story about a, a young girl with a, a rare disease, and she is in need of a blood transfusion. Uh, and, and her blood uh, itself is also very rare, almost as rare as the disease itself. And but they find a, a match for this young girl, and it happens to be her younger brother. Not only is he a match, but he himself had gone through this very illness, and his body had developed very helpful antibodies that would be very helpful for saving his sister's life. And so the doctor comes to the young boy and explains the matter to him as well as he can, and says, if you're willing to donate your blood to your sister, she'll, she'll live. So he pauses for a moment. His bottom lip begins to quiver a little bit, and then he, he smiles. He says, for my sister, I'll, I'll do it. And so they roll the two children into a hospital room, the, the young boy full of life and full of color, the, the little girl not so much, weak and frail, but excited to get this life-saving blood. And they hook the young boy up to the IV, they, they begin drawing his blood and as the boy sees the blood going through, going through the plastic piping, he begins feeling a little bit lightheaded, uh, a little bit flush and turns to the doctor and says, so when do I die? What is wrong with the world today? And how do we fix it? The answer has always been one of weakness. A son who would give his own blood for the life of the world. 
And as foolish as it may sound, it is the very arm of God for our salvation. As we've seen this morning, and as we'll continue to see in foolish ways, but for those who believe the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to the Jews and to the Gentiles, may by the Holy Spirit we believe it this day. Let's pray.